Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan. Here we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And uh, we have a program where some dreams came true for some folks who uh, basically created, uh, uh, I guess you could call it, an empire uh, that um, has uh, lasted many, many years. And we're going to find out about how that all happened. Our very special guest here on the program is the author of a book that uh, I encourage you to get a copy of, um, very insightful. <clears throat> it's called The Sassoons, The Great Global Merchants and the Making of an Empire. Joseph Sassoon is our guest, uh, and I want to thank you so much all the way from uh, our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., for joining us here on the program today. Thank you, Rizzo, for having me. Appreciate it. This is uh, an interesting story for a lot of reasons, <clears throat> and I'm going to come at it from the standpoint of, um, uh, of ignorance, shall we say, okay? Uh, because sometimes the better questions come from ignorance rather than having read the book. And Okay, so you said in chapter thus and such. So where originally, starting, let's say, from the beginning... <clears throat> Originally, where are the Sassoons, the Sassoon family, from globally? Baghdad, which is the capital of what is now Iraq. Uh, it used to be part of the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, but Baghdad was their home. And when was the, um, uh, would, I, would I be correct in saying the immigration or the the move from Baghdad yeah. to the United States. When did that take place? So the family goes back many generations there um, and in, was in a very good position. Um, and But the governor at the time, which was appointed by the empire, um, was a very corrupt one. One of the family members, David Sassoon, and his father had to flee the country um, in 1830. Mm. So we're talking about 190 years ago. Wow. And uh, they were uh, fleeing, what, religious persecution? No, no. What this governor had to do was nothing to do with religion. Okay. Any merchant family or family with wealth, um, he would arrest one of their children, and until they pay him a ransom... He would not release it. I mean, it was a real mafia work of the 1830s. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's, it's almost the equivalent of what they're doing today on the Internet with uh, all this ransomware and, exactly. and so forth. <laughs> exactly. And so he knew he already the son was arrested once. The father paid a ransom, but realized this guy is not going to stop once. He's just going to keep going. Yeah. So in the middle of the night, they flee Baghdad, they go via Iran, and there they sit, the father dies there after a few months, mm. and the son ponders where to go next. He didn't want to go back because of this corrupt governor, and he makes an interesting decision to go to Bombay, which is what is now Mumbai in India. Um you know, you have to really think about it in, in those terms. 1830, 31, 
You're sitting in the middle of nowhere in Iran and making a decision to take your family and at the time a wife and two of four and, and four children and head to somewhere where you don't know anyone, you don't speak the language based on one thing only. You heard from traders and merchants and sailors that in India, you go, you work, you make progress, you build your story <laughs> and, and um, you do whatever you want and they don't care about religion or sect. Mm, okay. You know, and, and this was during a time here in this country, in the United States, uh, what one might say, uh, especially out in the West, uh, sort of the wild, wild West. What was it like uh, back then in the 1830s, 40s and so forth? Uh, was it just as wild uh, abroad? Not at all. And, and when I am giving speeches and talks here, people say to me when I show a map and in the book there is a beautiful map of where all the places they were, they say, wait a second, where is the United States? And I say, well, unfortunately, by the 1850s, 60s, there were so many problems, and then there was a civil war in this country. Yeah. That did not exist. It's, it's fascinating because Bombay was really a sophisticated city, very small. Today, it's, by the way, about 22, 24 million. It had only 250,000 from different nationalities, from different religions, mostly merchants, agents, trade, they worked, they competed, but there was a fundamental respect between all those different competitors that unfortunately doesn't exist our days. Hmm. It's it's and and the other aspect of it too, and I because of uh, uh, in terms of bringing this up was also travel was not that easy. And of course, when you're talking about traveling uh, through Persia and, and so forth in that part of the world, you're not taking boats. You're not taking uh, uh, ocean liners or, or uh, uh, what have you that was available back then because you're talking about desert. And so this you're, is, you're traveling. One of the th it, it, it's sometimes land routes followed by sea route. Mm -hmm. And the sea route, I mean, even let's say from Bombay to Hong Kong or Shanghai, used to take three weeks in a boat. You have to understand it's exactly, it's not an ocean liner. Right. First of all, there were monsoon. A lot of these boats got wrecked. Uh, diseases on the boat. I mean, you name it. Something like 15, 20% of the boats never reached their destination. So... What really shook me at the time is not only how much they traveled for business, but by the 1850s, 60s, they were going on excursions. One member goes to Japan because he likes it there and he likes the food and the weather. Someone else, age 17, goes all the way from Bombay to Norway to climb a mountain. <laughs> and since a lot, I mean, it's really amazing when you think about it compared to our days. Indeed. And uh, even back then, though, there were people, uh, young and old alike, who wanted to have that kind of an adventure. They wanted to get away from what they may have been experiencing, whether it be uh, some some form of oppression, 
you know, uh, tyranny and so forth. But at the same time, also saying, you know, there's so much out there and I just want to explore and I want to see I want to see what's out there. And and they would take off um, the, the closest that I can get uh, as far as uh, not so much personal experience, because I'm, I'm not that traveled. Uh, I uh, I've I've been out of the country to the south only on a cruise ship uh, to the Mexican Riviera back in the 90s. And then uh, in the early 2000s, I went twice to Ireland uh, via England. Uh, that's about the extent of my travels. And I know that there are so many incredible places. Now, you said that um, uh, um, your ancestors, they went from, of course, as you say, uh, from <coughs> Iraq and to Iran and then to, to uh, uh, India. India. Uh, is, when, when was the idea to get into, shall we say, the business that the Sassoon family is known for? When was, when was that uh, uh, idea hatched, so to speak, or culminating? So when he got there, he realized that most of the people he's meeting are engaged in trade in one way or another, because Bombay was already a hub, an important port, um, and India was exporting a lot to Europe and particularly to Britain. Um, he started really very small. There isn't, you know, a one event or, or something like that that takes place mm -hmm. um, that changed his career. Absolutely not. It was really, you know, step by step. He kept building contacts. He kept building networks um, throughout not only India, but outside India. Um, and he took advantages. It's interesting. He entered the cotton trade at the end of the, um, you know, in a big way in the end of the 1840s when he heard in the in news that the United States is having a, a, a bad harvest in cotton. And he noticed that the prices was going up everywhere in the world. But there were also other events taking place. There were the opium wars where the British fought the Chinese and forced them to accept to buy opium from India. So the business developed slowly but surely. But just a quick thing to go back on the travel. Two things really very important for your for the listeners. One, the vast majority of countries in the world did not have a passport. So there is no such a thing. When you traveled from somewhere to somewhere else, even far, you went around in your own city and said, hey, has anyone gone there? And if they did, they will give you, um, they will give you a, a letter of introduction mm. to someone who's living. The other thing which really took me by surprise, how young these men were, and later on the women, to be traveling. So David Sassoon heard... Again, we have no internet, we have no telegraph. He heard in, in, the, in Indian circles, wow, there is an amazing opportunity in China, that China is even bigger than India. Well, he tells his second son, 
who just barely turned 17, hey, go to China, explore it, and come back and tell us or write us whether there are really good opportunities. Now, think about it in today's terms, sending a 17-year-old son on their own um, with nothing, no language, no knowledge, no person there. You're just traveling from one place to another to establish whether there are incredible opportunities. He, of course, tells him back, sends him back the report. Absolutely, China has amazing opportunities we need to establish. So they begin in Hong Kong, then they move to Shanghai, and then to other port cities in China. From there, they go to Indonesia, to Burma, to Japan, and then later on by the 1850s to England, where London was the financial city of the world at the time. We're talking with Joseph Sassoon. We're talking about the Sassoon family. Uh, of course, the, the term is used, the Sassoon Empire. Uh, in in uh, what would I, what, how would I classify this? The clothing or the fashion world? Is that, uh, uh, how, how, how would you describe the empire? What, what is it? Well, it's, it's a very large business empire in the sense of it covered almost all commodities. Um, we were talking before about uh, maritime. Um, they went into the maritime insurance. When technology came, whether it's telegraph, but also new ships that can travel faster, they immediately started investing in that, buying those ships. They even later on started buying docks. And if you go to India today, in Mumbai, you can ask any taxi driver to take you to the Sassoon docks. Mm. They still exist there. And a lot of the buildings in India still kept the name Sassoon. We're going to continue talking with Joseph Sassoon here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and it is really a pleasure to have Joseph Sassoon, um, I guess you could say, uh, one of the heirs to the Sassoon Empire, if you will. Uh, what are, are now? Are you heavily involved today in? And again, I I, I hope I'm accurately saying this. Uh, are you involved in the empire directly into any one of the businesses, or have you sort of uh, I don't want to say divested yourself, but said, look, uh, I know that's the family business, but you know, there's something else I'd rather do. No, so the book is really about the rise and demise of this big empire. Um, there is no more empire. There is no more business. Okay. The business, the business goes sideways after World War I and definitely uh, in a huge decline at the end of World War II. And why? One of the major events that take place is 1949, um, when the Chinese uh, Communist Party took over, they nationalized all foreign assets, including for the Sassoons, mm. who became British since the 1830s. Um, one of the Sassoons in the 1920s, uh, Victor Sassoon, uh, built the first skyscraper in Shanghai. He came to the realization that the land, after studying it with uh, engineers, is very similar to the land in Manhattan. 
So he brought an engineering firm from Manhattan and built the first skyscraper, which again still exists as a hotel. It's now owned by the Fairmont Hotel chains. It's a beautiful building over the bay, and but outside it's still called the Sassoon building. And upstairs, if you go to the presidential suite, it's still called the Sassoon suite. But its names here and there, there is a Sassoon library, there is a Sassoon docks. But apart from those names, there is no empire. I'm so I am just an academic <laughs> who teaches at Georgetown University. I'm curious, how tall is that skyscraper? Well, relatively not tall. I think it's 16 floors, okay. which was considered very high at the time. Yeah. It was definitely the highest building for many years in the 1920s, 30s in Shanghai. Yeah. And of course, now we're literally into the hundreds uh, exactly. of stories. And, and that can get a little a little scary. I was watching a program the other day, and, and they're having a conference or a meeting or whatever, all of a sudden you hear this groaning sound, you know, and one guy said, what is that? Well, <clears throat> this building is so tall that every so often when the winds are blowing, the building tends to move a little bit, and that's the sound, and that's normal. That's supposed to happen, and I'm going, not with me. I'm getting out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in Dubai, in the Gulf, they have a building, I think, 124 and it's really an amazing experience when you take the elevator because it's going so fast, it feels like, you know, your ears are popping yeah. out because of the speed it's going up and down. Well, I'll tell you that uh, a movie that came out in the 70s that I watched, and again, that also got me to question, how high is too high? Uh, and the movie was The Towering Inferno. Oh, you know, yeah. and I'm thinking, you know... Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I want to go up that high. I don't have a fear of heights. I have height anxiety. I'll go up to the 110th floor. But I'm going to be looking out the window going, huh, uh, you know, the, what do I hold on to so I don't fall? Uh, this is a, uh, uh, it's interesting too how, I mean, I'm familiar with this, the name Sassoon uh, because uh, I, I still see every once in a while, I see a, maybe an advertisement in a magazine or newspaper or uh, maybe uh, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, maybe it's my imagination. But, uh, you know, when I first saw the title of the book, I'm going, oh, wow, they, these folks are still, you know, they're still doing stuff, you know. Is there any remnant uh, that no, is still so functional? People, so people in this country confuse it with two other Sassoon products. Which okay. have nothing to do with the family and nothing with the story. One is Vidal Sassoon, ah. who, who had shampoo... Um, business. He moved to LA actually, but he's not a member of the family. And that's where that name uh, used to be uh, uh, quite familiar. There was also in the 70s and 80s um, Sassoon Jeans. Oh, yeah. Um, and and that, again, it has nothing to do with the family. So unfortunately, I can't get claimed. I used to get a lot of times at airports or immigration saying, hey, do you have shampoo on you? 
<laughs> Can I get a pair of jeans? Exactly. You know, and that's really interesting too, because um, as as the as the Earth has gotten smaller, so to speak, uh, in terms of our ability to travel, and of course, family names travel all over the place. Uh, I find it interesting. You know, you talk about uh, these two examples of the Sassoon name being heard, not connected. Uh, I'm watching television programs and movies, and every once in a while, they'll have a character whose last name is Dugan, and I'm going, "Well, that's interesting." I mean, well, why did they why did they choose Dugan? I mean, I'm that's kind of nice. I mean, a little representation here, but it just it's it's kind of weird to hear that in in the movies and television. Uh, so, uh, uh, but by the same token. Uh, if, if you're basically you're saying in the context of the rise and then shall we say the fall of the empire, there is no remnant left. But at the same time, here you are sharing the story of the family, your family, your ancestry, um, and your family, the ancestry. If if I am correct in what I was uh, looking at, uh, were Jewish. Is that correct? Yes. In Iran. In Baghdad. In Baghdad. Yes. That which seems, I don't know, at least from my perspective, and maybe I'm 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 superimposing today's concept of who lives in Iraq and Iran. Um, but I'm guessing that uh, that the Jews were scattered far and wide in the 1800s, um, not just in Israel. Uh, you know, they were they were they were all over the place. Well, actually, in. The origins of the community in Baghdad, or what was at the time before Iraq, called Babylon, mm -hmm. goes back 2,500 years. Mm -hmm. um, there was a very large community. In fact, about 15% of the total population of what is now called Iraq. The name Iraq didn't come into existence until 1920, almost 100 years after the beginning of our story. But there was Baghdad. Um, no, so they always belonged there. Um, and then they left, continued with their Jewish tradition in India, in China. However, by the third and fourth generation, they became very aristocratic English and they started not only leaving the religion, but denying that their origins were Jewish or Baghdadis because they wanted to be part and parcel of the English aristocracy. We're talking with Joseph Sassoon. He is sharing the story of uh, the uh, Sassoon family, uh, going back uh, again to, as he's shared with us already, the 1830s. And uh, we're talking about a book that he has uh, uh, put together called The Sassoons, The Great Global Merchants and the Making of an Empire. Joseph Sassoon is my guest, and you're listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and we are talking about uh, a family uh, that, um, quite honestly, and I, I kind of want to go here now, changed uh, a, a lot of, of what we know today, that if I'm curious if, if we were to remove, Joseph, if we were to remove the Sassoon family from uh, history, the, uh, the globe, the, 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 the economics and, and so on and so on and so on, would be totally different than it is today because of the impact that the Sassoon family has had 
Is that would would that be a fair a fair assessment? They were to a certain extent. Every large merchant family or dynasty that was created contributed something. Hmm. There were some fascinating aspect. One, how do you develop a network when you don't meet your other counterparts? How do you develop a network that you can rely on when you're never meeting them in person? And it's really fascinating. So the family built all around one thing and one thing only, trust. And they never signed a contract with their agents, with the other merchants. It was always, my word is my bond. And it really changed the way we look at the trading because to a certain extent, that continues in a lot of, you know, in the financial world, when two traders are talking on the phone, they're not signing contracts. I buy from you X number of shares or bonds, and I know you're going to pay me. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm delivering those shares. So I think this is really very important at the time and that a trust becomes so critical for everything they do. You know, in their correspondence, they never really cared about nationality, religion, identity of who their correspondents and agents and merchants are. They always asked a simple question. Can we trust this counterpart? Yes, do the business. No, walk away quickly. Mm -hmm. And and that is really a fundamental thing that continues to 100 years later. You know, and that's it brings up an interesting point. Uh, how do they know this? I'm curious, was it uh, uh, extensive investigation by whomever, like we have today, intelligence in, in all kinds yes. of corporations? Or were they trusting... And listening to that inner voice, that still small voice, they were trusting their intuition. So this is one of the most fascinating things that I came across because I kept asking, if you're dealing with some trader in the middle of nowhere in Japan, how do you know? Well, something goes around, it's called reputation. And the founder of the dynasty, David Sassoon, kept saying to his children in all the letters, listen, you make a bad investment, you lose money, but you do another one, maybe you lose again, but you can regain the money. You have many chances. Reputation, it's one way. Only once in your lifetime. You lose it, you're gone. And, and that becomes critical for all the other traders because even... <laughs> mistakenly, if someone's reputation is mired, you really have a problem to change that. But it's fascinating how traders, travelers, merchants, sailors went around and you would ask, hey, did you hear about this trader in this place or that country? And they said, yes or no his reputation uh, a preceded thing. And they accumulate that knowledge. Another thing that helped the family 
he spread his members of the family, uh, all the sons in different places, all the sons-in-laws in different places. So you have a very reliable network of family members, mm -hmm. then close associates, then close merchants and counterparts that you have been trading with. And as a result, within three weeks, four weeks of sending a letter from A to B, you said, I want to do this trade in silk. Is it reputable? Yes, no, or there was a problem. And that's how it developed. Hmm. So reputation is very, very important. And even to this day, reputation Correct. is important. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, in, in the global marketplace that we have today, uh, reputation can be make, made or broken uh, instantly uh, because yeah. of the technologies that we have today. Whereas I'm sure back then, if, if your reputation was poor or, or you know, uh, it took a while for it to spread, but it, it would spread like wildfire. It spread uh, and it was very difficult to correct it. Yeah. It's, it's probably as it was as hard to correct it then as it is to get back your identity if your identity has been stolen today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph Sassoon is my guest. We're talking about the Sassoon family and uh, their empire and and the rise and fall, if you will. Uh, and um, uh, we're going to continue doing so right here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. And. Uh, Joseph Sassoon, who is a, a professor at uh, Georgetown University, if I'm correct, um, and and you delve you delve into some very interesting subjects uh, that uh, you find uh, that you find interesting, obviously, and you share that with with uh, students who are attending the the, the universities and so forth. Uh, you 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 hold a number of different uh, positions and what have you, but one of the things I find so fascinating, one of the areas that you you delve into is Political economy, uh, po political economy, and um, that's an interesting mix. Uh, I know that politics can affect the economy and vice versa, but I have never really thought of it in the context of being a, a single entity, so to speak. Can you describe briefly what that is? What is political economy? What is yeah, a political I, I economy? Mean I, my area of speciality is really, apart from this book that I have written, is also working on the Middle East and authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. And there, politics and economics are interrelated. Um, all the economic decisions that are made are connected to political survival of the rulers. Um, if you look at the different, uh, you know, and I wrote a book called Anatomy, of authoritarianism in the Arab republics. Um, I wrote a book. Um, I was the first academic to look at the archives that the, uh, the, the, the U.S. has taken out from Iraq after the 2003 invasion and built around it um, all the structure of the rulers, particularly Saddam Hussein in Iraq and his party. And what you become to understand is how economics is not seen as a separate entity like here or in, in Europe. It is part of how you run the country in order to stay in power. And that is really kind of the, the definition of political economy. 
Whereas in this country, it's uh, <coughs> rhetoric, <laughs> uh, you know, telling the people what they want to hear in order to stay in power uh, and then supposedly doing certain things. Although it, it seems as though, uh, as you say, it's separate here. Uh, and yet at the same time, it does seem to have an impact on uh, uh, our economics and econo the economy will have an impact on the political fortunes and futures of certain individuals. I, I think that's one of the things, too, um, that I I'd like to talk to you a little bit about, and that is the difference between the East and the West, as, as we'll, we'll term it, the East and the West. I interviewed a woman many years ago uh, having to do with um, doing business specifically in China and that you cannot go to China or have business dealings with the Chinese the way you do here in America. Because if you do, you could potentially start an international incident because you, you have to understand the culture of that country, specific, in this case, China. Is that one of the big mistakes that we in the West make in terms of business in dealing with um, how do I put this? The Arab world, I guess, uh, uh, or or Europe, or uh, again China, because we think that we are so great, America, that we can we can call the shots, and that they're just a bunch of silly people that you know we can manipulate and we can we can uh, get to bend to whatever whim we we see fit. And yet, what do we have today? We've got these uh, these uh, 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 diametrically opposed concepts, and and we then have uh, uh, problems between the East and the West. Uh, I mean, I, uh, one of the things that I found fascinating years ago, there was a story about um, uh, it was uh, uh, it was coming in from I think it was coming in from um, China, L-tryptophan, uh, a, a supplement. And um, 400 people had suffered adverse effects from this, and yet who knows how many millions had been taking it. But only 400. And so our government banned it in the United States, coming in from China. And I thought, you know, that's interesting because you can have 400 people have adverse effects from uh, various uh, pharmaceuticals made in this country, and they do nothing. So I'm just curious as to... The American attitude and mentality in business dealing with um, other parts of the world. So going back to the book, which is really interesting and in taking you back to the 19th century, it's very interesting that in um, anywhere you went, I mean, English was prevalent, obviously in India, but also in other parts. When they went to China, um, one of the mistakes they made, I think, in, in the long run, they used to, in any country, learn the language, the tradition of where they are. They didn't do the same in China. Further than, uh, there was the issue that you could not, as a non-Chinese, deal with a Chinese trader directly. You have to use an agent, a Chinese agent who basically negotiates on your behalf. So already going back to the 19th century, these um, borders, trade borders, uh, artificial borders were created in, within China between 
traders who wanted to do business in China with the locals. So it's very important. I, I think part of the issue, what gave them strength and but some of their weakness is whether you're trading in the 19th century or the 21st century, whether you're dealing in politics or other aspects, the lack of understanding of the culture, the language, the, 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 the history is a huge, huge difference and a huge problem in anything you're doing, mm -hmm. whether you're trading, whether you're politically negotiating or whether you're invading or you're going to war, um, you need to know the other party. And the other party, you know it by knowing their language, understanding their culture, and understanding their strengths and weaknesses, not from your point of view, but from what is really in the field itself. Mm -hmm. What about this aspect you talked earlier about, because uh, you've written about it as well, it's one of your interests, is this whole aspect of authoritarianism. We still have that um, in, very, in various parts of the globe, in different countries. As yeah, a matter I mean, of fact, there, uh, or there would be those who would say that we came very close to having that happen here in the United States just recently. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, probably if you take by population, 70% of the world's population today live under authoritarian rules. Um, which is scary, really. Um, and yeah, I, I think there is a danger everywhere mm -hmm. um, that authoritarianism or people in power will not want to move away from power. I mean, I'm sure you're watching what was happening in Brazil. They came that far from, uh, uh, you know, the fear that the losing President will say, I don't accept, and and uh, there would have been clashes. I mean, yeah, we'll see how it develops. But this notion that exists in so many countries that the ruler is there to stay forever exists. And if you look in most of the Arab world, if you look in many other countries uh, around the world, you know, and you see that in Russia, you know, he announced himself to be president for life. You know, you can't expect changes then. Yeah. Uh, I have to say there was a humorous uh, side to this. Uh, the, the, the former ruler of um, uh, Iran, Saddam Hussein, uh, apparently uh, he held an election. Before the election was actually ever held, before anybody ever cast a vote, he said he won by 95%. Well, I'll tell you the story because I researched it in Iraq, and this was in 1999, in 1995, sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, he did, and actually it was not 95, he did a referendum. And the referendum is, who do you want to be your president? But guess the funny thing? There was only one contender. That was him. So I, I listened to the audio tape of the meeting when they're coming to tell him the good results. And they said to him, 
it's 99.5% voted for you, Mr. President. <laughs> and they thought they were giving him the good news. There was silence in the audio. And then he says, wait a second. So if half a percent didn't vote for me, and he was obviously calculating numbers on a piece of paper, that means 25,000 people didn't get your message. So I'm not sure you have done a good job. Wow. In 1999, they redid the referendum, and guess what? <laughs> he was again the only contender, and the result was 100 zero two. So it came over a hundred. <laughs> they said, why take, why take any chance? Exactly. My heavens. Well, you know, we've had our, our little situations here in this country uh, in the last few elections. Uh, and it's, it's, it is on the one hand, a little scary, but I also still uh, remind people that everything is temporary. Yeah, it may go on for 40 or 50 or 60 years, but it's still temporary in the grand scheme of things. The other, the other side of it, too, though, uh, is uh, if the people were to rise up and say, let's just say China has a billion people, right? Okay, and let's say the Chinese people decided billion to collect and a half, yes, a billion and a half, and they decided to, to rise up and say, you know what? We're going to take over. They can't kill us all, okay? Um, you know, I, I just sit here and I go, okay, well, the people are the ones. It's like in this country. You know, we have those founding documents, and they start out with, we the people. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I think about that in terms of, well, they can't kill all 350 million of us, you know. Um, and and, and I, it's like fear is, is the main yeah, you know, motivator. I, I yeah, I studied enough of authoritarianism. I can tell you the biggest component is fear. Mm -hmm. um, that is really what it's based on. And fear is a very big factor. It's easy to talk about going out to the street, but when you're seeing so many people being killed in front of you, yeah. look what's happening now in Iran with these women mm -hmm. who are so amazingly brave Yeah, going out, knowing there is one in two chance that they're going to kill you. They already killed already 250 people. It's very difficult to keep going out and doing it. And there is family pressure. Look, life is precious. It's not that simple for, yes, you're right. Technically, Technically. if everyone goes out if the whole city tomorrow of whatever city and anywhere in the world goes out, you can't kill all of them. But there has been incidents where these some of these regimes um, killed thousands. I mean, yeah. I mean, and they don't hesitate about that. Yeah. We look back in history and we can see that 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 has been done over and over and over again. And in the 20th century and now the 21st century, there are multiple examples. Yeah. Hard to believe that we've already been through one-fifth of the century. And we've had so much so much turmoil, uh, death and destruction and so forth. Just man upon man, not even uh, natural disasters. Natural right. disasters uh, I, we can deal with, you know, because there's nothing, we can't control that. 
Um, but uh, you'd think that after so many centuries, we would have learned some lessons. Uh, what do you think about the phrase, you know, that if we, if we refuse to learn from history, we're doomed to, to repeat it? Um, would it be your estimation that we are not learning from history, and that's why we keep repeating it over and over and over again? I think to a certain extent. I mean, look, after World War II, we thought we we're never going to go to another war. And we're almost at the brink. You know, you keep reading that uh, Putin is thinking of nuclear. I, I think that um, how leaders also are rising and basing uh, uh, on authoritarian or fear, we witnessed all this stuff before. Well, I will tell you that one of the things that is is so frustrating for me is uh, is the fact that uh, I'm only 62. My father is 91. Uh, I'm frustrated over the way things are politically, economically, militarily, etc., etc., etc. I can only imagine the level of frustration my father must feel, you know, uh, and, and uh, quite honestly... <laughs> this is said humorously, folks. My father and mother were having this conversation uh, shortly after the, the passing of my eldest sister. And, um, you know, my father, you know, was very close to her. And uh, uh, he said, you know what? I'm just tired. I, I, I just I just I just want to go. I just want to go. Now, he had just had his physical. He is perfectly healthy with the, the usual. Uh, uh, conditions of old age, you know, a little instability in walking. Uh, he's always had poor vision. Uh, he wears hearing aids, that kind of thing. But other than that, you know, his metabolism's great. His processes are running properly. And so he says to my mom this, he's, I just, I'm just ready to go. To which my mother, who knows all of this about his health, says, okay, so what are you going to die of? You know, <laughs> but I know that a lot of people are feeling that way, especially after this this pandemic that we've been through, which I actually looked at from a positive sense that we decided to do something different. We did something different this time when something hit the fan. And uh, so that means that the outcome is going to be different. And the other part of it was imagine the opportunities that lay before us. And this was back in March of 2020. I was thinking this that we don't even know exist yet. And I mean, there were people who around the world stepped up to help their fellow man and woman across the globe. It was fantastic. And there are people who, maybe not intentionally, they actually thrived during the pandemic because they were taking care of self, but also giving putting out there and yes maybe they charged a few dollars for this that and the other thing but their their goal wasn't to try to make uh, uh, millions of dollars off of the uh, the suffering it was it was to help yeah I mean actually I look at the covid story from beginning to end and I think it's an optimistic story yes because in March 2020 if you go back to newspaper they all said this is a virus. It usually takes five years for a vaccination. Five years. That's yeah. the average. Some of them longer. And here we were nine months getting vaccinations, which saved millions of people around the world. And now they're talking that some of the 
um, systems that were used can also start being used for certain cancer diseases. I think it's a very, very optimistic story about the resilience of humans. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more in that fact because uh, I uh, and my wife, I, I continue to work. I continue to come in and do the job that I do because, first of all, we have a, a minimal staff of one or two um, we, we also did not allow our programmers to come in. We do everything by Zoom, as you and I are conversing here. Yeah. And, and actually, many of them have chosen to stay on Zoom and continue to do their programs, uh, which is, is kind of nice in one sense. But um, I continued to work. And, of course, I wasn't afraid of, of contracting the, the virus because my goal has always been for many, many years making sure my immune system was strengthened, you know, doing the right things in that way. Um, and I did actually, at one point, I did test positive, but I, I didn't have any symptoms. So I guess I was asymptomatic. And then finally, when I tested negative, I thought, oh, good, I'm free again. I can, I can move about uh, freely again. Um, and, and my wife, she was positive. And of course, we're living together. People say, well, you know, you should go live out in your trailer, which we have, a travel trailer. Uh, because And I said, no, it's too late for that. If she tested positive, I've already been around her, so there's no point in me going, uh, uh, you know, going away. And we both got through that, and um, we've made it to, through the other side. And, and you sound to me like you are, in spite of everything that's going on, and, and not just COVID, but you sound rather optimistic about the future for humanity in general. Is that, is that a fair assessment? I mean, I think you'll learn whether in this book or studying other countries, the resilience of the people is always absolutely amazing. The ability to keep going and going and going. And in this country, there is a strong tradition of keep going in spite of the difficulties. Now, can there be a disaster like a nuclear war, which we never had anything to do with it and because it was imposed? Could be, I hope not. But otherwise, with all the difficulties that are facing the world, yeah, I, I, I am in general optimistic that people will always figure out a way to, to deal with it and, 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 and move forward. Mm -hmm. Joseph Sassoon is my guest, author of The Sassoons, is dealing with the, the rise and the fall of the, the Sassoon Empire uh, from the uh, uh, early mid-1800s uh, into the 19, uh, 19th, 1900s. Uh, and uh, that's always confused me. Uh, uh, okay, you're talking about the 1800s, which is actually the 19th century. It's yes. like, okay, I, I understand why that is, but why can't we just call it the 18th century? But anyway, that's another, uh, another conversation for another program, not necessarily for Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and Joseph Sassoon is my guest. I want to ask you, in light of what we were just talking about, and I will tell you that um, I had a conversation with my late sister three months before her passing, uh, and uh, we were chatting away about different things, and then we started to get into the real serious stuff. And I asked her, I said, are you ready? And her answer was yes and no. And I'm going, oh, seriously, yes and no. <laughs> I'm curious. For me, if today were my day, I'm ready. Is there more I want to do? Absolutely. How about you? 
If today were your day, are you ready? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I tell you, I I have now. I, I, the book was dedicated to my grandchild. She was. Uh, she's now four. Um, when COVID hit, and I was in the middle of writing the book, I, you know, it's wonderful to see someone who was one and a half years old um, has no care in the world apart from having fun. She was the only person that made me continue doing what I am doing because she's the only person who never talks about politics, about economics, <laughs> about the university, about COVID. She just want to have fun. Yeah. And for the few hours, and because my daughter lives nearby and we were taking care of the granddaughter, those everyday four or five hours were the biggest fun. There was no worries. Mm. And when you see them growing up, it's just a delight. I guess I would like to keep seeing that, you know, going forward. Yeah. And I, I certainly do understand uh, why the answer is no. Um, but uh, let's let's look at it f from a deeper perspective. Um, my my sister, uh, of course, her no was because she didn't want to leave her daughter and her husband behind, you know, the leaving the yeah. leaving them with, you know, taking care of everything and themselves as well. But from a more metaphysical or spiritual perspective, she says, yeah, I'm ready. I have no fear. You know, uh, I'm I'm ready. I, I'm just I'm just ready. And from her perspective, her beliefs and her faith, uh, she was. And I learned after the fact uh, from my mother and other sisters uh, that um, she, in spite of all of the health issues that she was suffering throughout her entire life, she was never bitter. I, and I just thought, wow, that's that is remarkable. But but it does come with age. I mean, my mother died the, earlier this year, 96 and a half. Mm -hmm. And she told me a year before, I'm ready. Um, you know, during COVID, she told me, I sent a letter to, and I didn't get, is the post working? I said, Mom, why are you sending letters? Who send letters these days? <laughs> Who did you send? She said, I sent a letter to God. Telling him, I am ready. Ah. I said to her, well, he's very busy now with COVID. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there is a, a long time, waiting time. I mean, it's different at the age. But part of it is was very interesting. She was very, very healthy. Mm. Extremely healthy. Um, and she was outgoing. But I think people at certain age with the restrictions, um, she kept saying, I'm bored. What do you want me to do? <laughs> Let's play some Parcheesi. <laughs> yeah. Well, during COVID, she couldn't go out. She couldn't do this. Yeah. She couldn't. She was traveling until a few years before. Yeah, it, it, it can certainly... Uh make a big difference in, in one's uh, uh, attitude. Uh, I, I guess I'm fortunate because I was still working. I was still coming down the hill from, from where yeah. we live into Santa Barbara and, and going to work and, and doing these interviews and having a great time in that respect. Uh, and um, there were so many other people who, who weren't 
uh, and, and so forth. Uh, and I know that it got to be very, very wearing on people across the country and around the world, for that matter. And now they're saying that we're headed for a, sort of a, a second, uh, shall we say, pandemic, uh, that being the pandemic uh, of uh, uh, dealing with the issue of mental health and well-being. Uh, I, I know, too, that as I as we were going through it, the people that I had surrounding me, uh, we would all be talking about how you know, we got to take care of ourselves, you know, take care of you, you know, take care of number one, uh, do some things that uh, that make you happy. What what makes you happy? Swimming. Ah, I try four or five times a week. I go to the pool. I come out. Those half an hour of swimming, I feel in a different world. I can't remember the last time I swam, and I live by the ocean. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I I find it uh, interesting too that the subjects that you cover could be real downers. Uh, just just looking at at this kind of stuff, um, I often joke about economists. Uh, Will Rogers said once, uh, you could take 100 economists, lay them end to end, and they'd still all point in different directions. And I've often asked, so, economists, what numbers would make you happy? Because we want you happy. I mean, the pursuit of happiness is part of one of our inalienable rights here in America. Uh, so what numbers would make you happy? Because when they're low, we know you're not happy. And even when they're high, you're not happy, you know. So uh, I, I kind of joke about that. Uh, and, and it seems as though there's got to be something more than the economy being the key to our survival and civilization. Um, what about you? In, in spite of the fact that you study all of this and you teach it as well and, and it's, it intrigues you, um, I don't know. I don't know if I'm being naive uh, to think that I, I just cannot believe, I, yeah, I know I've got to work and make some money to put food on the table and gas in the truck and so forth. But there's got to be, uh, as that song goes, is that all there is? Is the economy? No, you need to do other things. I mean, I think the countries that have the happiest population are people who are have real hobbies. It doesn't matter whether it's walking by the beach, whether it's gardening, whether it's building something with your own hands, whether reading, whether watching television or pop, something that keeps your mind going, it's really critical. Yeah. Um, I also derive a lot of pleasure of teaching young people because each year, you know, there is a new crop and you see them different ages. And some of them I stay in touch with, and there is nothing that gives me more happiness than, you know, this student that I taught 10, 15 years ago is now in the government or in a company or something and is really successful. Another one has done something amazing. It gives me a lot of, of satisfaction and happiness. Mm. Joseph Sassoon is my guest. His book is The Sassoons, and it has to do, of course, with 
the family, the empire, if you will, the Sassoons, the great global merchants, and the making of an empire. Is there a website that uh, we can send people to to find out more about you? I and mean, Amazon is the easiest thing. Okay. With a little discount, I think you just go and put Amazon uh, Sassoon, Joseph Sassoon, or the Sassoons, and you will get it there. There is an audio also for the people who like an audio that they prefer rather than reading. Oh, I love that. I love it. Audio books. Uh, as a kid growing up, I was listening to, they weren't called Audible back then. They were called Talking Books for the Blind and Recordings for the Blind uh, because I was a client at that time and loved listening to. And now I just happen to be a narrator for some, some books as well. So uh, it's a wonderful experience to listen. And it just is, it's a fabulous opportunity for folks to to read, and I still consider listening reading when you're talking about this. Joseph, yeah, Joseph Sassoon, my guest, this is Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and Joseph Sassoon, I want to thank you for giving us so much time here on the program, uh, sharing uh, your story and the story of your family uh, and, and uh, uh, the information that, that's there. Uh, do you find that, um, that history overall, has been kind from your perspective to the Sassoon family? I think so. I think so. I think it's the story of a refugee um, who arrived somewhere, built something. Uh, history was kind. I think the mistakes were their mistakes, um, their misinterpretation of events in the 20th century is really what led to that change of identity, change of work ethic mm. is really one of the main reasons that led to this demise. So I think overall, yes, history was kind to them. Well, I have three final questions that I like to ask all of my guests, and uh, you've uh, sort of kind of answered one of them, but I'm going to ask all three of them just the same because I like to ask them directly. Uh, and um, we'll do that as soon as I let you, the listener and the viewer, know that you are listening to as well as watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. As we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true, we are here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. We have a special edition of Tell Me Your Story on Wednesdays at 9 a.m., and we stream those broadcasts live at richarddugan.com. Podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, and many other locations. And, of course, as I said, you can watch these interviews on YouTube. We have a channel, Richard Dugan, and Tell Me Your Story. We hope that you will do just that. With all of that said, there's more that I could add to that, but I'm not going to because I want to get to these three questions to our guest, Joseph Sassoon. And the first of those three questions is, who is Joseph Sassoon? Well, Joseph Sassoon is someone who also was a refugee at some point in his life. Um, I actually was born in Baghdad and escaped with my family um, when I was a teenager in the 1970s from Saddam Hussein's regime and built a new life, uh, first in England and then in the U.S. Um, you know, that's the, the parallel with the David Sassoon. Mm -hmm. What is your life's purpose? 
I think life purposes changes with time. I think, you know, family becomes more important. I think pushing myself was always critical. Exploring new areas, learning new things is, will always be important. And finally, what was your best day? Um, when my first daughter was born, I thought I'm gonna take off in the air just with with happiness, mm-hmm. holding her in my hand. Well, Joseph, I want to thank you for uh, for sharing this time with us, telling us your story and that of your families as well. And I hope people will go to Amazon and pick up a copy of The Sassoons. And um, again, it's been a great pleasure to uh, to meet you, to get to know you, and to, to share you with our listeners. Thank you very much. I really appreciate having me. And I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story. New paradigms for a new world where we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to Lal and Jeanette, I am listening.